Nibira Podcast. Research matters. Hello, I'm Professor Dominic Wise, Bira President, and today I'm delighted to be chatting to Professor Neil Mercer, our Bira John Nisbet Fellow 2021. Neil Mercer is Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Cambridge and Director of the Study Centre Oracy at Cambridge at the Cambridge College Hughes Hall, of which he's also a Life Fellow. Neil's a psychologist with a special interest in the role of language in the classroom and the development of children's thinking. He regularly contributes to professional development activities for local authorities and schools. One of the main outcomes of his research has been the teaching approach called Thinking Together, which he created with Lynn Dawes, Karen Littleton and Rupam Vegarif, which has been shown to improve children's skills in communicating, learning and reasoning. His research has also included studies of the use of educational technology, such as recent work with Sarah Hennessy, Ruth Kirshner and Paul Warwick, which looked at the use of interactive whiteboards in primary and secondary schools. Other research has dealt with aspects of distance education and work-based training. So Neil, many congratulations on the award of the John Nisbet Fellow. Um, lovely to speak to you today. Uh, and so without further ado, I'm going to launch straight into our questions. OK, so tell us a little bit from your perspective about your career and your research focus. Thanks, Dominic. And, as you know, I am very honoured to be given this award. I do appreciate it. My career began really when I initially failed my A-levels through playing music too much as a sixth former. And it made me reconsider what I should do for university when I retook them. And it was then I discovered psychology, which hadn't been my original choice. And I then went to Manchester to do a psychology degree. And the, the career structure there was quite flexible in some ways. So I was able to do linguistics and, and anthropology and things, as well as the, the more obvious subjects that go with psychology. And that got me interested in language. And so I started in my third year to do a project on spontaneous speech. And so that's what really what got me going. And that's how I persisted with a, with a PhD in psycholinguistics at the University of Leicester. But my interest in language and its relation to thinking had really begun because of my own experience, both in and out of school. Having moved from one part of England to another, where they spoke a very different dialect of English. And dialects in those days, <laughs> given the age I am, they were much stronger than even I think than they are now. And it was quite apparent. Uh, that how different it was to use one way of speaking in English than another and what it meant for your identity and how that impacted on how you operated in school. And it became very apparent to me that in-school language and out-of-school language are two very different things. So I was already interested in this. The other thing I got interested in at school was how come I seemed to be able to do really well in some subjects and not very well in others, and yet I couldn't really understand why. And when I asked for feedback from the teachers, I can't say it was all that helpful. There were some teachers who were great and there were some who, who obviously weren't. I, you know, I, I wanted really to understand that as well. So the whole notion of, of language as the toolkit for the process of teaching and learning was already something that was sort of latent in my head and really influenced a lot of my own experience. So, so that's really what I did. And then having done a PhD in psycholinguistics, I realised, having read people like Douglas Barnes and Basil Bernstein and Shirley Bryce, heathen people, as, as a, a PhD student, 
I realized I didn't want to be stuck in a laboratory anymore doing psychological experiments. I wanted to get out there in the world and do real life psychology. And that was when I made the switch then. And the, the field that seemed the most interesting and, and practically valuable was education. Mm. So that's why I moved into that. I got a, my second teaching job in the university was at the OU. And the job I got there was in the department that was concerned with creating courses for teachers in, in language and reading. So that was that's the way it went, really. It's, it, in retrospect, it just sounds obvious. But at the time, it was it wasn't kind of a planned trajectory of any kind. As mm-hmm. these things, I doubt if it's any different for you in some ways. It, these things emerge rather than, than being planned, you know. So I think yeah. that covers that part of it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, of course, an obvious connection for me on a personal level straight away is music. Yeah, I think I experienced some of those same tensions at that same A-level stage where I did, as you know, go on to study music. So what about then any key issues or and or changes in educational research that you kind of have seen as you've gone through your career? Yeah, I think there are. Within psychology, there has become a greater awareness of how you have to take account of the realities of everyday life rather than abstracting certain things and studying them in a limited way. But within educational research, one of the changes that I'm most pleased by, I think, is the move towards mixed methods. I started to realise, and this was a while back when I was working with Rupert Wegerich at the OU initially, we started to realise that there were these two camps in education research which were quantitative and qualitative. And neither train shall meet. And I actually remember being at one or two meetings where quantitative researchers started to speak. A qualitative researcher stood up and said, I'm not hearing any of this and walked out. And, you know, there were these ideological attachments, if you like, to these two approaches. And it seemed to us that that was not the way to do it. The way to do it was to look at the problem and see, one, what was the problem and what methods would address it best? And secondly, what kind of evidence did you want to obtain? Who was it meant to convince? What was it meant to come out with as a conclusion, you know, in terms of impact? So that, for me, is, is great. You know, and I, I really think, I hope now, that, that no doctoral or master's students in education are ever expected or wished to, to, to join a camp like that, you know. And so I think that's a really important one. Another one, I think, is the technology. When I was doing my PhD at Leicester, there was one computer which occupied almost all of a small building. And the only time I could get on it to analyze my data was by getting a slot at two to four in the morning because I was low low down on the pecking list. And, And that was how it was. And it was very, you know, complicated. And here I am sitting with something that's hundreds of times more powerful just on my desk. And and that was one thing that really did make a difference. And not just the qualitative research, because we've since had technological advances in the way you can make videos, the way you can analyse videos, the quality of sound recordings and so on. And analytic software, like concordance software, which you know linguists use a lot and people like me have used quite a lot, which you can see the real talk going on and then yet bring it down to some measurable or, or analysable stuff. Mm. And so I think that, that those are the, the main things, I think, that have, yeah. that have changed dramatically, really. Absolutely. And uh, really interesting to hear you talk about mixed methods. I mean, in, of course, 
it's an age-old debate in some respects, philosophically speaking, about epistemology, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, if you're not tied in, in an ideological way to a, a methodology, you can see ways that they can complement each other. And, yeah. and in the most recent research I did with Christine Howe and, and Sarah Hennessy, I mean, we've published now both a qualitative analysis paper and a quantitative yeah. one. And the point is, you know, you could see things that the quantitative analysis, a coding of talk was telling us, and then go and see wh whether they stood up in reality when you look closely at a classroom. Likewise, when you saw what something came up in the classroom, you could say, well, was that really represented in the coding? Or if we were doing it again, would we modify that? Yeah. So I, I think you've got those kind of ways of doing it. And, and I think that that really is to everybody's advantage, although it makes the process a lot more messy in some ways. Yes. I think it's ultimately more satisfying. Yeah, I agree. And I think it perhaps brings us to better knowledge, if I can put it like that. Anyway, let, let's turn now then to perhaps someone who has been an important influence on your life and career. I was thinking about this, and there have been quite a few. But I think one of the people who's had the most direct influence on my career, on my interests and so on, is Douglas Barnes, uh, who fortunately I'm still in touch with uh, regularly. And certainly I think really showed me how somebody could have a genuine and thorough and very committed interest in classroom education, but yet stand back a bit from it and look at the talk going on in it, the interaction going on in it, in a way that revealed things that it wouldn't wouldn't really be obvious. And and sometimes I think people can't always see why that's that's important. Uh, sometimes the things that, that people like him have revealed, once they're revealed, they seem like common sense, but they're not until yeah. they're revealed. And, and so he's one of the big influences, definitely. Mm. And then there are others, obviously, you know, like Vygotsky, uh, although I never met him, he, he certainly was an influence, uh, as were people like Courtney Kasdan's early classroom research Shirley Bryce Heath and Gordon Wells and people like that, mm. um, and John Tuff. So there were a whole lot of people in that field early on who, in fact, Lynn Dawes and I have written a, a, an article on, uh, which which people can ask me for if they want, which is on the history of this kind of research. And you see those names and how they came in. Even though they often didn't know each other, they, they were still influential in a, in a collective sort of way. And then the other people who had the most influence are the people I've worked with, because, you know, I, I don't see research as a solitary pursuit. It's never been my idea. It's always been a collective one after my PhD anyway. And so people like Derek Edwards, who I worked with first, I mean, he was, you know, a big influence on what we did, even though he wasn't an education researcher thoroughly. And the people you mentioned earlier, you know, Rupert Wegerith and Lynn Dawes and, you know, Paul Warwick and Sarah Hennessy and so on. Mm. You know, I always feel the teams are what produce the research not yeah. me. And so that's why I see all my, you know, my best publications as joint authorship ones, really. Mm, yeah, thank you. And so now then, how about a key message that you would like to give to the wider education and educational research community? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I think one of them is, if you're talking to researchers, then I would say, treat teachers as research partners, not as the objects of your research. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that's what we've done, and I think you've done that. 
Mm. I think we work with teachers. We don't do research on teachers. That's an important part of, of how to work. I mean, I say when I'm, I'm doing, at the moment, I've got quite a few CPD sessions lined up. And I, I say, you know, my colleagues and I, we, we don't sit in ivory towers trying to think of clever things to tell teachers to do. What we typically do is go out there, find out what really good teachers are doing and try and distill it down to something that we can show is evidence-based and can be and, and can be you know can, can be spread so uh, that's one of the things i would say and the other one i would say relates back to what i said about methodologies i would say to teachers and other practitioners again not like the quantitative qualitative research thing avoid simplistic dichotomies they're almost always wrong they're almost always red herrings and there are still still float around you know like traditional teaching versus progressive teaching oh my god you know and you see people on twitter kind of getting very hot on the color about this uh, and it's rubbish uh, i mean the empirical research genuinely does not support an extreme version of either no. and what the best teachers do is something that isn't covered by either of those labels Although, you know, they're like a Venn diagram thing. And so that's that's the sort of thing, I think, is, is making those simplistic choices between one approach or another, because it hardly ever is like that. So that, that would be the second one, really, I think I would say. Yeah. And, and of course, the that avoiding dichotomies and these sort of binary oppositions yeah. Yeah. also applies back to what you were saying about qual and quant, doesn't it? I mean, it does. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I agree. And in your own field in reading, I mean, in reading, it's there's, there's been the, the they're called the reading battles, aren't they? Sometimes, I mean, since I joined the OU, and you know, I, I I wasn't familiar with the literacy side of things, but my colleagues were working in that, and and it was already at that time these these encampments, you know, shooting at each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, funnily enough, I've revisited the the fray recently, so um, have you? Oh wow. Uh, <laughs> I'll be back out, back out there. We'll see. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Let's. Why don't we move to then? Uh, we've got just a couple more topics, and the the second to last one is thinking about early career researchers. Yeah. You know, of which you've worked with many. What would be your sort of key advice? I think I've got about three things. One is choose a topic area that will sustain your interest. Don't just pick it because you think there's a gap in the knowledge there or because it's a high status one or whatever. I, I think if you want to keep going, it's got to be something that keeps you interested. And I know that from not only my own experience, which, you know, on the whole has been positive once I made that slight shift, but from other people I know who've kind of given up or, or you know. So yeah. I think that really is worth worrying about and thinking, am I picking something that I really want to pursue and thinking hard about it? A second one would be, if you can, if you've got any choice, choose to do it in a place where other people are doing it as well. And I have to say, when I went to Leicester to do a PhD, I was a pretty lonely uh, PhD student. Most of the other people in that department were doing research on animal behaviour, you know, uh, guinea pigs, ducks things like that, you know, which was really interesting to hear about, but they couldn't really relate to me all that well. And it was only when I went to the OU where there were other people genuinely interested in the area that I felt I was in a, a sort of team atmosphere. So that's one of them. And I think another one is really learn, this relates to my current interest in oracy and stuff as well, but learn how to communicate your research clearly to different audiences. I sometimes say at the end of fevers, you know, I, a PhD say, well, okay, let's just try this. If you were given 
less than about three minutes, four minutes on, on Radio 4 to say what my research was and why it was worth doing, what would it be? Yeah. And, and, it's a, and I was asked that, uh, you know, by a professor, and, and I found it hard, and I, but I thought I ought to be able to do it. So I think that's another thing. And I think, you know, that communication of, of ideas in the way, you know, somebody like Brian Cox is very good at doing for physics. Yes. Uh, and, and some people are, you know, in our own area as well, obviously. But, but I think that's a good thing for early career researchers to treat, not as a secondary thing, but as a sort of a, a central thing of development. Yeah. And I, and I would say, if I had to put your work in a nutshell, it would be to say that what you've done is make us all realise much more profoundly how important student-teacher interaction is. Almost where all the learning happens. I mean, you've talked about, you know, IT, which we could simply see as a set of tools and a resource. But at the and we can talk about school buildings and spaces, other spaces where learning happens. But in the end, for human beings, it's the interaction, isn't it? And that interaction can be to varying degrees positive, negative, and everything in between. That's right. So thank you so much for your long, long contribution that continues. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Uh, you can finish with the, so three recommended readings, if you wish. Yeah. <laughs> I will try. I found this very hard. Yeah. Um, I think I'll cheat slightly and um, and give <laughs> some more. If I was saying to people who were getting into this field, what what should they look at that was, that was kind of a landmark in recent times, you know, not going back to Vygotsky or anything, but I would say Robin Alexander's Culture and Pedagogy is a pretty influential thing to look at because it's recent enough to still map onto the current educational world and it offers us that global perspective which is lacking in a lot of education research. There's also Christine Howe's Peer Groups and Children's Development, which I think sums up that field in a very clear way. So they would be too like that. But I would also, <laughs> to cheat a bit, I'd also say looking at people who are both teachers and researchers is really interesting, uh, or people who've got involved in this you know, link between research and practice, because you see really different ideas coming out. And certainly one of them would be my Oracy Cambridge colleague, uh, James Mannion, um, who wrote with Kate McAllister the book called Fear is the Mind Killer about uh, interventions in educational research. That's a quote from Dune, by the way, apparently. But And so I would look, really look at Fear is a Mind Killer. Then there's, there's ones like Lynn Dawes' Talking Points, which is really putting all that stuff right back from Douglas Barnes right through to more recent research into practice in primary classrooms. Yeah. And then, of course, there's Alice Stott and Amy Gaunt book on oracy for teachers, Transform Teaching Through Talk. And I think, again, you know, they're, they're people who are closer to what used to be called the chalk face than me. But I've never taught really in school. But they have. And so they're coming in with that other perspective as well. So that would be my recommended readings, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think that final point also is a, is a bit of a theme today, isn't it? It's what I and Beer have now described as close to practice research. It's all these issues. And, and I've written as president about how I think education, and I, I call it deliberately an academic discipline, and I struggle a bit with the term field, but that's for all sorts of reasons. But nevertheless, that deals with practice necessarily, and I include policy within practice, as well as doing research in the way that other social sciences. Well, Neil, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you ever so much. Congratulations again. And who knows, we may be in person in Liverpool in 2022.
Well, I'd like, very much like that. So look forward to seeing you. If not before, I'll see you then, Dominic. Thank you. The Beera blog aims to provide research-informed content on key educational issues to policymakers, academics, parents, teachers, educational leaders, members of school communities, and anyone interested in educational research. We've recently published our thousandth post and celebrated by republishing some of our favourite posts in a special issue. To view that and all the latest blogs, please visit www.beera.ac.uk forward slash blog. On Thursday, the 2nd of December, we will be holding our annual lecture in partnership with the Commonwealth Council for Educational Administration and Management, CCEAM. Professor David Gurr from the University of Melbourne will be talking on educational leadership through and beyond the pandemic. The event will consider the rapidly growing literature, the impact of and responses to the pandemic on schools, and the implications for education and educational leadership. Whilst the pandemic is an ongoing major disruption to education across the world, and many are predicting revolutionary change, David will argue that changes to education and educational leadership will be more evolutionary than revolutionary. Registration is free. Please visit www.bira.ac.uk forward slash events.